Time for a test tube Thursday, so we say good morning to our science expert, Dan Riskin. Hello there. How are you? I'm okay. So tell me what a vacuum balloon is. Yeah, a vacuum balloon is a really neat idea. I'd never sort of, I've never heard of this idea before, but there are apparently researchers in in, uh, New Mexico trying to build these things. And so here's the idea is, uh, you're familiar with uh, the idea of a helium balloon, where the density of the gas inside the balloon is lower than the density outside, and so it floats. And so if you had a really big helium balloon, you could duct tape somebody to the bottom of it and they could ride around and it would be a, a, a way to get around. And, you know, we, we have the Hindenburg, which was built filled with helium or with hydrogen. Um, and so filling it with a very less dense gas is one option. Helium's tricky because it's a limited resource and it's hard to find enough of it. Hydrogen has this small problem that it's extremely explosive, that the Hindenburg, that's what's why it exploded. So those two don't work. What if instead of filling a balloon with a very less dense gas what if you just took all the air out of a balloon what if you made a vacuum balloon so that you pump all the air out of this giant balloon and then it floats and then you can use that to get around and as long as the uh, hole doesn't spring into it and it fills with air uh, it should stay up in the air and so this is the technology they're working on they haven't actually built one yet. So they're still, it's still theoretical. They think they've found a, what they call a hydrogel, which would be the sort of what the balloon is made out of so that it wouldn't leak. And so it'd be strong enough, but light enough. Um, And they calculate that in order to make one of these that floats on its own, it would have to be about the size of a basketball. They haven't scaled up to what that would look like for something that people ride around in. But the idea is that this could be some kind of future aircraft that's much more sustainable than burning a bunch of fossil fuels to fly planes in the air. Yeah, okay. Well, it's sort of proof of concept. Let's see how it works. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, actually, I don't want to cold cock you on something you may not have prepped for, but um, I've been told for years that we're running out of helium. What's going to happen if we run out of helium? Yeah, helium is, it's a weird one. It's its mined from the ground, which I found it, it's locked up in a bunch of rocks. And so there are big deposits in Texas and, uh, and, and that's where a lot of it comes from. But the price of helium keeps going up because it gets harder and harder to find. And every time we use it, you know, you, you fill a balloon for a kid's birthday party uh, and it pops, it just goes up into the air and we can never get that back because it just floats up towards space and sits at the top of the atmosphere, kind of dispersing out. Um, helium is important because beyond just birthday parties and making your voice sound really funny when you inhale it. Um, it's used in a bunch of biomedical instruments. Like I, I think CT scanners or, or some other devices, uh, helium is needed for a bunch of applications that are, that are important to the health industry. So the, the shortage of helium is uh, of concern to a lot of people, um, but we're not at a critical point yet where people are sounding the alarm. They're just, the price is going up, which is an indicator that we're getting closer to something dangerous. Okay, you have another story today about effectively uh, chicken whispering. Yes, it turns out that people are better than you might expect at determining how happy a chicken is from the noises it makes. And and I'm happy to say I have brought some chicken noises with me this morning. So I'm going to play two clips of chicken sounds. And I want you to tell me which one's the happy chickens and which one is the sad chicken. So let's, uh, if Nick would be so kind as to play the first one. Go ahead, Nick. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, that's the first one, and uh, here's the second one. Huh. Okay. John, which one was happy and which one was sad? I would go for the first clip that that was a happy chicken. You, sir, are uh, a chicken whisperer. Huzzah. As are any listeners. Yeah. 
the chickens are happy that you got it right. So that, as you can hear, um, I, this study makes me scratch my head. I mean, they published it in a scientific paper, but that's basically what it comes down to. 194 people listened to clips like the one you just listened to. And they said to people, are these happy chickens or are they frustrated chickens? And the way they recorded the sounds, by the way, is they were giving some of the chickens food and they were happy about it. And some of the chickens they were withholding food from, not starving them, but just like the chickens came expecting food and they weren't getting food and they were frustrated and they made noises. So those that's how they got those two different kinds of sounds. And the, the big the big statement from the study is people can tell if chickens are happy or sad. I don't think that's worthy of a scientific paper. I kind of thought we knew we could tell if animals were happy or sad from their noises. But nonetheless, they did publish it. They do say that it's uh, very exciting because it means we could better understand, you know, in terms of taking care of chickens, we can use human ratings of uh, the noises they're making as better indicators. And it also points to the fact that there's sort of a universal language among all animals that we can sort of understand about happy versus sad. But I, I, again, I think this was a little bit of a weird paper. Still, though, when you come across research like this, you think, oh, great, now I shouldn't be eating chickens. I don't know about you, but like I saw a video earlier this week where there was a pig and a dog playing with a ball, and I thought, I can't eat bacon. Yeah, it's uh, that's the thing with a, a lot of the social media is it sort of changes your perspective on a lot of stuff. I mean, it used to be that food was sort of hidden away from us and it just appeared on our plates. Um, oh, before if you go back before that, we had to kill the animals ourselves instead of having somebody else do it. So, uh, you know, it's a progression. And, I, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the vegetarian diet and what motivates people to do it and how people who are vegetarian are perceived by other people. Um, but that's a whole can of worms or, or pig or whatever the can is filled with. So you have some news to Today about what we could do with our coffee grounds. Australian research looking at uh, the application. So we make a lot of coffee, as do Australians, sure. apparently, and uh, we get a lot of coffee grounds. And the coffee grounds themselves maybe could be used for something more than getting thrown into a landfill. Um, you know, they're biodegradable, so it's not the end of the world. But still, it's a lot of material. Uh, so what they tried doing was cooking it um, in an oven to sort of dry it out and turn it from just uh, wet pile of grounds into something they call biochar and then taking that and adding it instead of sand to concrete they found that the concrete was in was stronger if they used the coffee grounds instead of sand and so they it's 15 percent of the concrete instead of being sand was these coffee grounds and it was 30 percent stronger so they're making the argument that maybe we should be you know looking for ways to to harvest all these uh these coffee grounds that are getting thrown out use it for concrete and then we get a huge benefit out of it and we produce less waste so it's kind of a neat idea i don't know how feasible it is to to get everybody's coffee grounds but uh presumably there's got to be if where there's a will and an economic will there's a way and uh, east coast land erosion continues to be a problem yeah, this is uh, this is interesting. This is not so much erosion as it is uh, something called subsidence, where when you draw groundwater out from the ground, uh, everything sinks a little bit. And uh, there's a new study just sort of quantifying how big the problem is on the east coast of the United States. Um, they, they find a huge area all up and down the Atlantic coast uh, is sinking at about two millimeters a year. And that doesn't sound like very much, but sea level rise is going the other way at four millimeters a year. So it, it does compound sort of the big picture of what's happening. It affects about 14 million people over the course, over the range of, of places. People like, uh, or, or sorry, places like New York City and Baltimore are especially hard hit. And uh, to put it in con context, Jakarta, Indonesia is sinking at about a foot a year. 
because of collapsing aquifers, and that's right on the water. And so uh, in Indonesia, they're, they're, they're even talking about moving the capital city from Jakarta to somewhere else, to a whole different island. Uh, but that affects uh, millions of people that live there. So uh, using groundwater faster than it's replenishing is a problem for coastal cities, and uh, this is one of the things that uh, planners need to think about. Thank you, sir. Good to have you this morning. Thank you, and thank you to the chickens. Those happy chickens. Oh, great. How am I going to eat chicken now for Pete's sake? They have emotions. They have happiness. They have distress. 